Frank Sinatra once said, quote, Alcohol may be man's worst enemy, but the Bible says to love your enemy. Close quotes. Whilst in Homer's The Odyssey it says, quote, It is the wine that leads me on, the wild wine, that sets the wisest man to sing at the top of his lungs. Laugh like a fool, it drives the man to dancing. It even tempts him to blurt out stories better never told. Close quotes. Alcohol may be one of those things that almost every writer, statesman and public intellectual has a great quote about. Alcohol is a universal product, and to illustrate this, the very name itself is an Arabic one. Whilst brewing alcohol is as ancient as civilization itself, distillation was predominantly an Arabic invention. Distilled alcohol was used by the Arabs for antiseptic, eyeliner and for cosmetic reasons. Alcohol was formed from the transition of the natural mineral stibonite to form antimony disulfuride. The Arabs considered alcohol to be the essence of spirit of this mineral. The Arabs called this mineral kohol, and Western translators added the Arab definitive article, the Arab equivalent to the, which is al, as in al-Qaeda or al-Jazeera, which makes the word al-kohol. In the 18th century, the term was used, such as the alcohol of wine, to talk about the ethanol, you know, the bit that actually gets you drunk. Humans have evolved to be around alcohol. Drunk animals behave almost exactly the same way as humans do. This varies from stumbling around, aggressive fighting, as humans do. However, animals don't seem to consume alcohol for pleasure, as we do. Most of these observations of intoxicated animals have taken place when alcohol was forcibly given to animals by humans. And it's a good job animals haven't got a taste for alcohol. When 150 Indian elephants broke into a distillery in 1985, they got drunk and ripped apart the concrete building, resulting in five people dying. Humans have evolved to drink. The drunken monkey hypothesis supposed that Homo sapiens developed a preference for fermenting fruit as a dominant food source, therefore humans managed to develop a specific enzyme about 10 million years ago that allowed us to process sugar and therefore alcohol far better than the rest of our nearest cousins. A feedback system was therefore in effect. We ate fermenting sugar to give us calories and a little alcoholic taste. The alcoholic taste also makes you hungrier, giving scientific reasoning behind the 2am trip to the kebab shop. Prehistory is prehistory because we can't be sure, but about 10,000 BC in modern day Turkey, before agriculture, the oldest known building is located there. But there is no evidence of anybody actually living there. It has no roofs or walls. There are, however, huge stone tubs holding about 40 gallons containing traces of oxalate 
which is formed when barley and water are mixed. Effectively, beer. It would appear that the building, known as Gobleki Tepe, was a meeting place, and most archaeologists are fairly certain it was beer remnants found in those tubs. Leading to the great theory that humans settled down not to farm, but because we wanted to make beer. It also means that perhaps the oldest building known to mankind was actually a pub. But for whatever reasons, it was about 9000 BC when we can say agriculture was invented. Agriculture led to two relevant things for us. The first is definitive archaeological evidence for alcohol, and secondly, the growth of civilization. Alcohol is found 7000 BC in China, 6000 BC in Georgia, 3150 BC in Egypt, 3000 BC in Babylon, 2000 BC in Mexico, and 1500 BC in Sudan. With civilization came writing. With writing comes records, and with records comes the end of prehistory and the start of history. As you may know, the earliest written records are mostly of tax and accountancy. These records shows there was no money but IOUs and bartering. The currency was barley, gold and beer. This system first developed in Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, who even gave the world Ninkansi, the god of beer. We don't know how beer was made by the Mesopotamians, but it probably hasn't changed much in the last 10,000 years. One of the most famous and oldest pieces of literature, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which we shall revisit when we get to the episode on literature, starts with a mild man who is tempted into civilization by a priest who has sex with him and then gives him seven drugs of wine which he loves. Beer was everywhere in early civilization. One of the oldest pieces of writing with a significant length, the Code of Hammurabi, the Babylonian Code of Law, has three passages pertaining to alcohol. Quote, 108. If a tavern keeper does not accept corn according to gross weight in payment of drink, but takes money, and the price of the drink is less than that of the corn, she shall be convicted and thrown in the water. Close quotes. Basically, that means if you get a short measure, you can get the tavern mistress drowned. The next one, quote, 109. If conspirators meet in the house of a tavern keeper, and these conspirators are not captured and delivered to the court, the tavern keeper shall be put to death. Close quotes. Quote, 110. If a sister of God, a priestess, opens a tavern or enters a tavern to drink, then this woman shall be burned to death. Close quotes. When we talk about ancient Egypt, we're talking about a long, long time ago. Cleopatra, the last monarch of what could be called ancient Egypt, lived closer to us than the building of the pyramids. As you might imagine, this causes some difficulty in seeing exactly what ancient Egyptian culture was, as it changes over time. 
Early ancient Egypt is a mystery. We know, for example, that King Scorpion, who died in 3150 BC, was buried with 300 drugs of wine, but not much more than that. From about 1200 BC onwards, we have more records, and what these show is that Egyptians drank, not because beer was purer than water, or because it tasted nice, but they drank to get drunk. Indeed, Egypt had a festival of drunkenness held annually, where people would get hideously drunk, find somebody to have sex with, and then fall asleep vomiting or drop unconscious. If you think that's impressive, you should come to an English city on a Friday night. We'd show the amateur Egyptians how to really drink. Indeed, this festival of drunkenness was a religious festival centred around alcohol. And almost every culture has had a religious drinking festival apart from here in the West. The first great European civilization was the Greeks, who of course drank wine, not beer. The Mediterranean climate was perhaps the main cause of this, though they drank the wine watered down, basically making it the same strength as beer in beer-drinking countries. The Greeks were also perhaps the world's first alcohol snobs, passing it down through generations to hipsters and their overpriced IPAs and craft beers. The Greeks considered the Persians and their beer-drinking culture to be barbarian. To the Greeks, the Thracians and their undiluted wine was barbaric, though of course the Greeks drank according to themselves just right. The Greeks, of course, had a god of wine, Dionysus, who, according to myth, liked to kill teetotalers. Even Plato documented the Greeks' snobbishness towards other drinkers, saying, quote, Scythians and Thracians, both men and women, drink unmixed wine which they pour on their garments, and they think this a happy and glorious institution. Close quotes. The Greeks, being weird, and depending on the polity, developed different rituals by the time of the classical period around the 5th century BC. Spartans would force their slaves to get drunk to tempt the Spartan children away from drunkenness. The philosophical Athenians developed theories on how to get drunk. Plato said that getting drunk is like exercise. The first time you do it, you'll be bad and end up getting hurt. But practice makes perfect. And if you can do it well, you can show self-control and show yourself to be an ideal man. When Alexander the Great's armies marauded across the known world, they encountered the Indians. Alexander's army considered the Indians to be near teetotalers by their standards. But when they tried to hold a mock Olympic Games following the death of an Indian follower, the Indians were unfamiliar with these Olympic disciplines. Therefore the Games would be a drinking contest. Preceding Freshers' Week and sports societies by 2,300 years, the results were disastrous, with 35 dying at once in this drinking contest and six more in their tents. The winner drank around four choes of unmixed wine, which today would mean around 16 bottles of wine. 
There is a Chinese myth that goes that wine was invented in 2700 BC by Yai Dai, who presented his invention to the Chinese emperor Yu. Yu drank it and liked it, but thinking it would cause disaster to society, he banned it. This is like most early Chinese myths, and completely untrue. Mainly because we have already found wine in China in 7000 BC. Though, as Hermione Granger once said, legends always have a basis in fact. And Chinese attitudes to booze were basically the same reasoning as Yu's excuse. In that, alcohol is wonderful, but it probably shouldn't be widespread. There are numerous stories of alcoholic emperors being brought down by overdrinking and alcoholism. Though this is still the period of Chinese myths, so we shouldn't trust them too much. With the advent of writing in China, we have many proclamations banning alcohol. Why so many? Well, probably because all prohibition is ineffective, as the United States would find out in the 1920s. What was the Chinese solution to the repeated popularity of alcohol? The writings of Confucius. Confucius's basic tenets was to ritualize society in order to make it feel more normal. If you spend all day kowtowing yourselves to superiors, it will seem perfectly natural. The solution was to bring wine into ritual and only allow it for occasions. Drink as much as you like for the ceremony, but otherwise let it not be in your life. The result was that people went to funerals of randomers in order to get a drink. Alcohol and religion has an almost dichotomous relationship. We think of the astore nature of religion and think it can't be sanctioning a load of pissheads. Yet alcohol is central to many biblical stories. The first thing Noah does after the flood is plant a vineyard. While Lot and his two daughters are living in worry that they'll never find a nice husband and so they get their father, pass out drunk, and have sex with him. In the Old Testament, there are 200 references to wine, and almost none are negative. In the New Testament, wine is still central. Perhaps the most famous of Jesus' miracles is the miracle at Cana, which Christopher Hitchens describes as the only worthwhile miracle. In it, Jesus turns water into about 120 gallons of wine, at a wedding. While Jesus himself was known as something of a drunk, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus proclaims, quote, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Close quotes. Then we get to the Last Supper, which is of course based around drinking wine, which ritualised in Christianity the idea of wine drinking. Now to Rome, and early Roman history is quite a dull place. They were great at building aqueducts to get water around, but there was very little wine, as you might expect for such a militaristic culture. Numerous ordinances were put in place to stop drinking. However, by the time of empire, money and wealth poured into Rome, and decadence was the next result. 
a drinking culture appeared in Rome very quickly. Romans would sit in a sweat room of a bathhouse to dehydrate themselves so they could drink even more. In the early Middle Ages, where we see the legacy of the Roman Empire, the wine Rome produced spread far beyond where its frontiers ever went. It went into Germany, and Roman-made goblets were found in the burial grounds of a Germanic leader's tomb. The early Middle Ages are sometimes called the Dark Ages for the lack of written records during this time. One of the few places in Western Europe that kept records were monasteries who became one of the leading places for wine production. This was started by Saint Benedict who issued guidelines about how much monks should drink. Alcohol flourished during the early Middle Ages. Due to the lack of effective government, or should we say a government as effective as the Romans. The water in many places of Western Europe was of disgusting quality. The aqueducts were mostly failing, and so ale was a much more reliable and healthier drink than water. You were unlikely to get cholera from ale. Meanwhile, a new class of people, not clergy, commoners or feudal lords, was established in the 12th century in Europe. A need for literate clerks meant that normal people had to be taught something other than Bible study. Paris, Salerno, Oxford, Padua and Toldio scholars inhabited a significant part of the population. 10% of Paris's population at the end of the 12th century were students. Students were offered the same privileges as the clergy. They could not be prosecuted in secular courts. Even when matters got out of hand, in one instance, students ran riot over the price of wine, which led to several deaths. The King of France, the Pope, and the Holy Roman Emperor pledged special protection for these students. The students, by their own admission, were fanatical drinkers and employed their newly fangled literacy to compose Latin songs about wine and women. Muslims don't drink, we know this, but as we've established, the word alcohol is an Arabic one. Indeed, the Quran has a whole passage describing paradise. It describes paradise as having a river of wine, Surah 47.15, if you want to look it up. While Surah 83 says that good Muslims will receive sealed flasks of wine. However, one of the things about the Quran is that almost everybody, from respected scholars to ISIS knows, is that there are contradictions in the Quran. And the way to sort these contradictions out is to go by the later comment in the Quran. If there is a contradiction, it is the later passage in the Quran that should be adhered to. For example, the oft-quoted quote, quote, There shall be no compulsion in religion, close quotes, which is trotted out after any suicide bombing or other heinous acts, is contradicted by later verses which promotes the idea of religious violence. In the penultimate revelation in the Quran, for example, it is said, quote, So when the sacred months have passed away, then slay the idolaters wherever you find them, and take them captive and besiege them and lie in wait for them in every ambush. 
Then, if they repent and keep up prayer and pay the poor rate, leave their way free to them. Close quotes. Therefore, this becomes Islamic doctrine, not the earlier quote about there being no compulsion in religion. So when you see somebody pulling this trick of quoting earlier passages from the Quran, you know perfectly well that there are later contradictions. Why does this matter? Well, the Quran was originally positive about alcohol, but then a drunken fight broke out amongst the followers of Muhammad, leading to the quote, quote, O ye who believe, strong drink and games of chance, and idols of divining arrows, are only infamy of Satan's handiwork. Leave it aside in order that ye may succeed. Which is the phrase from the Quran that most Muslims use for the reason for their teetotalness. It should also be said that the Arabian Peninsula isn't much of a vineyard, so there may not have been much grape flowing around. Yet Islam spread to far more fertile places. It reached Mesopotamia and the Levant. Famously, early Islam was very tolerant. Jews and Christians were perfectly happy in Baghdad, and wine was easy to get. Abu Nuwas is known as the greatest of Arab poets, and most of his poems were wine songs. Theologically, as a Muslim, you could probably drink and just repent afterwards. Which, to be honest, is what most people do anyway after waking up after a night of drinking. But alcohol is still a sin in Islam. So the Islamic empires became not just empires led by Muslims, but Muslim empires. And so the rules got stricter. Alcohol was outlawed by a succession of shahs and caliphs. However, Islamic history is riddled with rulers drinking and then banning alcohol and then drinking themselves. One ruler banned alcohol, got sick, and was told by his doctor he needed alcohol for medicinal reasons. He drank the alcohol and got better. He then got addicted again to alcohol and drank himself into an early death. This hasn't changed much. With the Iraqi Ba'ath Party, the PLO, the Libyan dictatorship under Gaddafi, and many parts of the royal family known for their love of Johnny Walker Black Label Scotch. As it often is, it's one rule for the rulers and one rule for the ruled. Alcohol, it seems, is one thing that will always be consumed even when it's banned. There are stories of Muslims in Bosnia saying it was only wine banned by the Quran, so they would drink raki, a wine variant. Much like illegal narcotics in today's society, alcohol has always been drunk in Islamic countries but behind closed doors, away from prying eyes, and quickly. Rather than save the taste, one Iranian mullah said in 2011, quote, Not even the Westerners drink alcohol like we do. They pour a neat glass of wine and sip it. We here put a four-litre barrel of vodka on the floor and drink it until we go blind. Close quotes. In the West, the most popular drinks would have been ale as it was the cheapest. Ale would not have been nice. It was lumpy and had the consistency of porridge. It was effectively liquid bread, taking as much for its calorific quantities as its alcohol. Meanwhile, wine was drunk only by the very richest. It had to be imported from France or Italy, meaning it was expensive. And so it was a rich man's drink. Beer, however, was then invented. Not ale, but beer. 
The difference between an ale and a beer was the use of hops. Hops were the key ingredient, and unlike ale, beer was tasty. Beer was also far easier to mass produce. It didn't go off. And with Britain slowly hitting the Industrial Revolution, soon after the introduction of hops, beer was the perfect product for mass production. So we haven't talked much about spirits yet, mostly because during this point they were a peripheral invention when talking about alcohol. The ancient Greeks were distilling around 2,000 years ago, but this was distilling water in order to make it more drinkable. It was the North African Muslims of the 10th century who really invented the idea of spirits. But whether they used it for drinking or as part of their chemistry development is an ongoing debate. Spirits, however, slowly seeped into European life, and between 1600 and 1700 it started to feed into daily life. It began with the French, who were into their brandy, and then the Dutch, who were into Geneva, which is now known as Dutch gin. During the Glorious Revolution of 1688, the English got themselves a new monarch, and a Dutch one at that. The Dutch monarch, William, brought England gin. Gin became as synonymous with the Dutch as sake with Japan or vodka with the Russians. But, for some very good reasons, gin became almost co-opted by the English. The new English monarch was Dutch, and the Dutch drank gin. Gin became associated with militarism, as Dutch soldiers drank it before going into battle, which is where we get the phrase Dutch courage from. The Dutch soldiers were fighting for Protestantism, often against the French Catholics. Gin was therefore seen as a drink for Protestants. Gin was also made from grain, but unlike eating grain, the quality of the grain doesn't make much difference in the quality of the gin. So, during a bad harvest, the gin can still be excellent, making gin a very good drink for time when the grain supply was haphazard. But perhaps the real reason gin was so popular was because it was dirt cheap and very strong. It was very easy to set up a gin distillery, with no regulations required and pretty much anybody could set up a gin shop. On average, gin was about 80% ABV, double the modern day standards, so it's not difficult to imagine why it was so popular in England. A subsequent gin craze hit England, and it was deadly, literally. Spirits were new, and people would drink it like it was beer. We have gained 300 years of a culture in which spirits are drank, but people in early modern England hadn't gained this culture. They would drink pints of 80% gin. Gin was both a male and a female drink, and it wasn't long before there was a moral panic about the substance. By the 1690s, gin was seen as a moral hazard affecting the population, and something had to be done. It led to the Gin Act, which required a license to sell gin. This was entirely ignored. Gin Act after Gin Act was put in place, and eventually its impact on the population was reduced. Like all great things, Britain exported its love of booze to the colonies. Australia and America took up the booze trade with enthusiasm. In 1797, the largest distillery in the United States was owned by George Washington, who, 
when he wasn't getting the people of America drunk, was doing other things we needn't concern ourselves with. While the coastal areas of the United States followed the old world brethren by drinking beer, even for breakfast, further into the West, or the Wild West as people call it, people drank spirits. Why? Well, unlike in the movies and the TV shows, the West was not poor. People wouldn't move from the cities to somewhere poorer, would they? They went to the West because it was rich. Wages twice as high as the cities, and new markets were opening every year from mining, fur and cattle. So we have a large and growing population with few women, little transportation out of the city, and relatively high wages, meaning bars selling spirits began to spring up in that very entrepreneurial way of the Americans. It is a myth portrayed in the Western films that there was always only one bar in town, and all the people would go to that bar. Adam Smith's invisible hand should show what nonsense that was. Additionally, the idea of the saloon's batwing doors is also a Hollywood myth. But if you ever do find yourself in a 19th century saloon, there are a couple of things you should know. You only buy whiskey and beer, and even beer is a bit suspicious. And you should also buy a whiskey for the person standing next to you. This seems like a rule in most salons, and also, if you don't accept the drink given to you, you'll most likely get beaten up. The other thing worth knowing is, and this is something Hollywood got right, is you should never ask how much a drink is. You simply throw the money on the table and don't get any change. I suppose it's a status symbol to the other patrons based on how much you pay for your drink. Well, who would you find in one of these saloons? White men? Black men might have been allowed in, but Native Americans and the Chinese were banned. They were the backbones of the towns, but were hated. The chances of death in a saloon were slim. People obviously got shot, but nowhere near as much as in the movies. But then again, if a film was just a real-life depiction of a 19th century saloon, there wouldn't be much of a story in that. If one country is to have a drink that embodies the entire people, it is the Russians and vodka. So important to Russia is vodka that it can be plausibly stated that it caused the Russian Revolution of 1917. In 1914, two things happened. The First World War started and Russia banned vodka. You would have thought that stopping soldiers getting pissed was a good idea when entering a war but not at the cost of a third of the state's revenue. Of course, it was only really a ban on the poor drinking vodka. The rich could get it with ease. Leading to the other theory that these were the only three years that the Russian peasant was sober enough to work out just how screwed their country was. Russia was founded on booze. In 987 AD, Vladimir the Great, the ruler of Rush, was deciding what religion to pick for his subjects. After dismissing Judaism because they had no homeland, clearly they had been abandoned by God, he became attracted to Islam. But after learning there was no drinking in Islam, he claimed that drinking is the pleasure of all Russians, and so opted for Eastern Christianity. Drinking is central to Russian history. Ivan the Terrible would force alcohol on people. If they didn't drink at all, he was known to execute you. He would also get a servant to write down everything you said while drunk 
and the day after you would face whatever punishments you deserved for whatever you'd said. Though compared to some of the hangovers I've had, that sounds like a small mercy. Stalin was well-versed in using alcohol as a political tool. He would force the major leaders of the Communist Party to dinner and force alcohol on them. They would get drunk and turn on each other, further increasing Stalin's ability to divide and rule. As Stalin sat at the top of the table drinking vodka, though most people suspected he was actually drinking water. Churchill and Stalin bonded over drinking during the Second World War, leading to the possibility that it helped the Western alliance. During a period of August 1942, Churchill visited Stalin and the two had a late night piss up discussing the war. The Russians could obviously drink, but so, of course, could Churchill. Andrew Roberts' biography of Churchill states, quote, There were several late night eating and drinking sessions that went on till 3am. This was another trial for which Churchill had a lifetime preparation, though it tested the constitutions of several of his entourage. Close quotes. At the end of the Soviet Union, Gorbachev again tried to introduce a temperance movement in 1985. His regime collapsed six years later. The only two times Russian leaders have tried to curb Russian drinking, it ended a short while later in the collapse of the regime. Putin, you have been warned. The most famous time temperance has been tried was 1920s America. With women having gained the right to vote, prohibition was the first real major effect. Women were the main backers of the temperance movement, but prohibition was not really aimed at alcohol per se, it was aimed against the saloon. The American saloon was a place for men. The legend is that men would get paid, go to the saloon and spend all their money, and then go home and beat their wives blue. Maybe it's true, or maybe there's some element of truth, but all we know is that an amendment to the Constitution was passed in 1920 banning alcohol, though many states had actually laws passed already in previous decades. Part of the problem of the temperance movement was the Volstead Act. It's all very well to pass a bill, but how do you do it to ensure it's enforced? How do you do it to ensure there are no loopholes? One way is common law. Murder is very well understood. You kill somebody, and if you meant to do it, you're going to go to jail, despite the fact that murder has never really been statutorily defined. The prohibition of narcotics in the modern day is a complete mess when it comes to public policy. It's illegal to appease the conservative right, not because it makes any sense, or because it really makes drugs any more difficult to get. The Volstead Act, the law that enforced the 18th Amendment, bound alcohol prohibition to failure. Medical patients and religious communities were allowed to drink. Indeed, in 1931, Churchill, quote-unquote, recovering from a traffic accident, was given special dispensation by his doctor on a speaking tour of America to drink as much alcohol as he liked. Distillation of alcohol for industrial purposes was exempt while pre-prohibition stocks of alcohol were also legal, and if you happened to stumble on any other alcohol, it was legal to drink. Leading author Ian Gately to state America was damp 
rather than dry. It made the Volstead Act one of the worst pieces of public policy in history. One of the main themes of this podcast is the law of unintended consequences. And the two things I think of when I think about the United States in the 1920s are Prohibition and the Model T Ford. If Prohibition had come about 15 years earlier, it might have worked. But with the developments in automobiles for everybody, it made bootlegging so much more easy. Obviously, with such a poor piece of legislation, smugglers or bootleggers would come into fashion. The smuggler William S. McCoy was an ex-seaman and yacht builder, and he saw the opportunity like any good businessman would. And so, with a British registered ship, he started to smuggle alcohol into the United States. Not one for watering down his booze, he soon got the reputation for the best alcohol smuggler in the United States. William S. McCoy is where we get the phrase, the real McCoy. Did Prohibition work? Well, read The Great Gatsby, and no it didn't. But The Great Gatsby is set in rich Long Island. Prosperity and high population density meant it was easy for mobsters to smuggle alcohol. If you lived in the rural United States, it was a lot harder to drink, and many people did live in rural areas. People say Prohibition was a failure, and perhaps it was, but if its true intention, which I think it can be argued it was, was to change the drinking culture and eliminate the saloon culture, it can be seen as something of a success. Such was Prohibition's impact that for decades, and perhaps even now, American beer has a reputation for being worse than its European counterparts, as many skills and expertise were lost during the decade of illegality. In 1939, 42% of Americans were teetotal. The legacy can be seen with this today. In England, the pub culture is still central. While many Americans don't go into saloons and spend all their monies nowadays, do they? The post-war decades saw alcohol drinking rise significantly as a proportion of pure alcohol. This is for a few reasons. First is the increased prosperity and disposable income of most people. Second is the more relaxed attitude to alcohol in most places. Third, there was increasingly more advertisement of alcohol allowed and put in place. In the United States in 1938, there was $6 million spent a year on alcohol advertisement. By 1950, it was $50 million. While there were a few technological advances which allowed for increased growth, Advances in the chemical processing of water allowed for identical beers. Beer brewed in California could be identical to that of Virginia. Once this process had been completed, national campaigns could be carried out. The beer can was invented in 1935 and became widespread in the 1950s as the easiest way to drink. It led to the growth of home drinking, and with TVs in everybody's home, you didn't need to leave your house to be entertained. It wasn't long until alcohol was embedded into popular culture after the war. Rebel Without a Cause, featuring James Dean, had his character being picked up out of the police station while being drunk. His parents don't even mention temperance. It's seen as normal teenage behaviour. Post-war drinking was low in Britain, 
but with reconstruction and rationing. The French drank three times as much during the 1950s as they had before. But the one place where alcohol soared in use was in the British University. Immortalised in novels such as Lucky Jim, the British University was built around alcohol. Australian Prime Minister during 1983-1992, Bob Hawke, may be famous in Australia for many legislative achievements. But during his time at Oxford, he is famous for one thing. He failed to appear at a dinner without a gown, and it forced upon him a punishment. The punishment is to drink a sconce of two and a half pints. He did it in a world record time of 11 seconds. Hawke later said that this incident may have helped his political career by endearing himself to a country with such a large beer-drinking culture. The modern history of alcohol has seen a global liberalisation of the drug. As cultures all around the world have attempted to imitate Western culture, but there has been a renewed debate regarding the levels of alcohol that can healthily be drank, with some saying that no alcohol at all is best, with some medical professionals saying that a couple of drinks a day is actually quite good for the heart. In previous decades, the people who were campaigning against any alcohol content have preferred to focus on the modern excesses of drinking, such as drunk driving, something hopefully that will become even more taboo than it is today. Alcohol should be fun and not dangerous. In much of the West, and in many other parts of the world, alcohol is ritualised in our lives. From the first drinks in a bar at 18, to meeting people in pubs and bars, to drunken kisses and drunken mistakes, alcohol is a crucial part of our lives. Not all inventions have to change the world. Some can just be fun. Alcohol is most certainly that but it also serves as a fundamental point of our culture. Alcohol forms an important part of our history, and it truly is a great invention, deserving its place on our list at number 81. Now normally I finish the episode there, but such as alcohol, and the amount of good quotes about it, I would like to finish this episode with a quote by one of the most famous drinkers of our time, Christopher Hitchens. Quote, Alcohol makes other people less tedious, and food less bland, and can help provide what the Greeks called enthanos, or the slight buzz of inspiration when reading or writing. The only worthwhile miracle in the New Testament, the transmutation of water into wine during the wedding at Cana, is a tribute to the persistence of Hellenism in an otherwise austere Judea. The same applies to the cedar at Passover, which is obviously modelled on the Platonic Symposium. Questions are asked, especially of the young, while wine is circulated. No better form of solidarity has ever been devised. At Oxford, one was positively expected to drink, to take wine during tutorials. The tongue must be untied. It's no coincidence that Omar Khayyam, rebuking and ridiculing the stone-faced Iranian mullahs of his time, pointed to the value of the grape as mockery of their joyless and sterile regime. Visiting today's Iran, I was delighted to find that citizens made a point of defying the clerical ban on booze, keeping it in their homes for visitors, even if they didn't particularly take to it themselves, and bootlegging it with great brio and ingenuity. These small revolutions 
affirm the human, close quotes.